The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. I'm Jeff Cutmore with Karen Cho and Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Italy in focus, but resignation rejected. Italy's president refuses to allow Prime Minister Mario Draghi to step down after the five-star movement forces a split in the national unity government. Covid lockdowns taking their toll as the Chinese economy shrinks by 2.6% in the second quarter, throwing major doubt over Beijing's ability to hit its full-year growth targets. U.S. banks J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley close lower after both lenders miss on the top and the bottom lines, weighed down by weaker investment banking revenues and increased provisioning. Inflationary pressures hanging heavily over a meeting of finance ministers and central bankers in Bali as the Secretary General at the OECD tells CNBC the world must band together to shoulder the costs. Russia's war of aggression is putting huge pressure on the world. It's really important that the rest of the world uh, sticks together, works together to help uh, soften uh, some, of, some of that impact. And oil prices drop below $95 a barrel for the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine as US President Biden defends his decision to visit Saudi Arabia today. To promote US interest, promote US interest in a way that uh, I think we have an opportunity to uh, reassert what I think we've made a mistake of walking away from, our influence in the Middle East. Italy's president has refused Prime Minister Mario Draghi's resignation. Draghi tried to step down after a split in his coalition with the Five Star Movement saying that the national unity majority supporting his government, quote, no longer exists. The populist Five Star Party walked out of Parliament over a package of cost of living aid they claim does not go far enough to help the public. The measures still passed comfortably with 172 senators supporting the vote. President Mattarella has now asked Draghi to address Parliament next week to get a clearer picture of the political party's intentions. The Five Star Movement's Marco Pellegrini outlined his party's opposition to the government spending bill. Non c'entra nulla. It has nothing, nothing to do with the relief. We suggested to the government to take it out from the bill and put it in another bill, but they told us no. This means we're carrying on without a sense of responsibility. We instead want to carry on in taking care of the Italian people, proposing everyday solutions for their interest only, and we want to believe that the government and this majority are listening to us. Antonio Tajani from Forza Italia hit out at all parties that contributed to the latest crisis. These are unpredictable, unimaginable consequences provoked by irresponsible choices of a political party which is only damaging the Italian people. Right, well actually Italian assets, I would suggest to you, have been pretty well behaved considering what's being thrown at them at the well um, uh, as well. Let's have a look. It's the FTSE MIB. 
Yes, down 3.4%, but actually um, it could have been a lot worse. The banking sector, as you would expect, uh, under enormous pressure, um, haven't actually got the latest moves on those banks. So let's move on. Italian yields, uh, again, which hit over, well, I think Karen said, what did you say, 4.25 you said to me yesterday. Exactly. Yeah. So got up to 4.25 on the 10-year at their peak. Look at that. Only 3.3%. That is absolutely fascinating for all of us. Who are us who believe that perhaps those yields do not reflect a whole might multitude uh, of concurrent crises in Italy. But I guess if the ECB's got your back and you've got an anti-fragmentation tool in your armory, then I'm sure all is wonderful in Italian debt world. Well, let's move on and take a look at where the euro is currently trading. Again, not trading any worse than we were before this latest incarnation of the Italian debt political, financial, I don't know. I don't know how many crises you can have on top of each other, but I would suggest that Italy potentially has got a lot. Uh, so, so is this um, the same old Italy, or, yes. or is this a real crisis for the Eurozone? I think this is um, one of the questions we're going to have to tease out through the course of the morning. But speaking to CNBC after the EU's latest economic forecasts, the bloc's commissioner for the economy, Paolo Gentiloni, said political instability in Italy is not welcome at a time of broader economic volatility. In this um, framework of uh, troubled waters and with possible stormy weather coming, instability and lack of national cohesion are of course not good news. But again, this is uh, something that uh, member states are discussing in their national dimension and that we are not uh, intervening as European Commission. Of course, we are strongly supporter of stability and we are uh, very much interested in the reputation of Mario Draghi. Paolo Gentiloni there. Well, let's get out to uh, Germana, who joins us from Rome with more on this story. Uh, and Germana, just um, map out for us what's likely to happen over the course of the next 24 hours in Italy. I mean, 24 hours, if the last 24 hours are anything, a lot can change. But uh, let me just uh, explain to you what happened and what went down yesterday because it gives a little bit of context about what is going to happen next. Uh, as you were just talking about, yesterday the government tried to put in a key piece of legislature to the Senate. One of the key parties in the National Unity Government, the Five Star Movement, decided not to support or to boycott the confidence vote as it was going through. Now, the, the, the piece of legislation itself still ended up passing with a comfortable majority, but that wasn't enough for Prime Minister Draghi because from the very beginning when he joined and decided to lead this government in 2021, he said, I will not do it unless I have the support of every single party in government. Obviously, that changed yesterday when Five Star Movement lawmakers decided to boycott the vote. And so Mr. Draghi has repeatedly said that he would not lead the government unless all parties are supporting. Yesterday, put an offer to tender his resignation. Now, this sent shockwaves through the uh, political class and through everybody uh, in the afternoon yesterday. And for about an hour, a lot of people were asking questions as to what this means for Itali Italy's both political and economic future. Only for it to emerge one hour later that the president himself, President Mattarella, indeed did not accept this resignation and went back to Mr. Draghi and said, look, why don't you go back to the parliament again, give it five days time 
and the next time around you can have a confidence vote not on a piece of legislation but actually on the government itself. So as it stands, what we know is Prime Minister Draghi is yet set to address the parliament again on Wednesday this coming week, after which we suspect there will be a confidence vote in which, by the way, he is expected to get through. Given the numbers of yesterday, even with Five Star not participating in that confidence vote, he still does have the support of other major parties in the government, including the likes of Forza Italia and PD, which are other serious parties in the national unity government as well. So uh, the question, I would say, over the next couple of days is whether or not he can appease some of those uh, quite vocal lawmakers from Five Star Movement who are led by the former Prime Minister uh, Giuseppe Conte and whether or not he can grant them a few more concessions in order for them to be comfortable in joining this national unity government going forward. But all this being said, and, and we've spoken about this time and time again, let's not forget that the clock is ticking. At the end of the day, there will be an election, whether they like it or not, in spring 2023. That has to happen. And so, yes, this draggy government can buy a little bit more time and perhaps push it to a, a little bit longer to the end of the year. But there will be elections and all of the lawmakers in this national unity government are watching those elections very, very closely, especially at a time when the polls are fo- pointing in favor of both the right and the centre-right parties. Jamana, thank you very much for setting that up for us. Much appreciated. And let's push on to China, where the Chinese economy contracted in the second quarter as the country's ongoing battle with COVID outbreaks took their toll on activity. GDP fell by 2.6% compared to Q1, sharply missing forecasts. Let's get out to Evelyn, who joins us now from Beijing with more. Evelyn, this is not quite the same contraction we saw in 2020 on the back of the Wuhan situation, but still the numbers show the extent of the slowdown across the mainland market. For sure. Thank you. And the GDP did miss expectations, growing 0.4% in the second quarter from last year, you know, barely growing. And I think the big concern now is, you know, is the recovery going to be as big as what we saw in 2020. Uh, with this muted GDP growth in the second quarter, that brings the first half of the year growth to 2.5%. And if we're going to get to around 5.5%, one economist from Macquarie says you know, we're going to need 7% growth in the second half of this year. And that's not possible if you don't get some sort of pickup in policy stimulus. Uh, the Statistics Bureau here is trying to sp- strike a relatively confident tone, talking a lot about the recovery and, in fact, pointing out how much better China's doing relative to the U.S. and European economies, especially on inflation. But he still emphasized there's lots of uncertainties and many challenges for how China can reach that economic target for the year. Back to you. All right. Terrific. Evelyn, thank you very much indeed for that. We'll catch up with you a little bit later on. Um, Moving on, we need to talk about the banks. We need to talk about the earnings. We need to talk about the reaction. Wall Street's biggest lenders kick off earnings season with falling profits and increased provisioning. We'll have the details in just a few moments. And for more on the latest political crisis to hit Italy, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. 
Shares in JP Morgan closed down over 3% after the lender missed on the top and the bottom lines in second quarter numbers. The bank was weighed down by a trio of issues as it posted weaker than expected uh, performance in its investment banking business and built up reserves for bad loans. JP Morgan also suspended its share buyback program amid a gloomy economic outlook. Morgan Stanley missed second quarter earnings and revenue expectations with the lender also experiencing a decline in revenues at its investment banking operation. This led to overall revenue falling 11% to $13 billion, while profit at the bank slumped 29%. Filippo Alouetti joins us, head of financials at Federated Hermes. Uh, Filippo, good to have you with us on the programme here. Look, the market seems a little bit surprised at the weakness of some of these business lines. What, what's your opinion? Yeah, good morning to you. Yeah, I think I thought there are already a few trends emerging in this uh, reporting season. The first one, I think the market was expecting a weaker investment banking uh, revenue. That's because I thought there's been very little activity on both on the equity and on the fixed income market. As the uh, firms have been more cautious and there's been less uh, M&A announcement. Then I think I thought the trading was uh, relatively fine both at the, at the Morgans. Um, I think what surprised and maybe there are two things. So the first one is, uh, of course, I mean, the inflation, we all know it's running very high in America, 9% the last um, CPI read. And I still see uh, in the consensus model only 3 to 4% uh, expenses, um, full year expenses for, for the American banks, which I think is a little on the light side. And I think so there will be more pressure on cost, as I think Jeremy Diamond was uh, reminded us about yesterday. And then I saw also on buybacks, I think probably the streets got got a little bit ahead of itself, projecting, uh, um, say, almost 100% um, of the net income being paid back to the shareholder in form of buybacks and in, in dividend. As we've seen with JP Morgan, you, you really can't have this 100% payout ratio when you have long growth. And at the same time, the regulator, which is uh, the, the Federal Reserve, which is getting a little concern about the outlook, economic outlook in the near term. I mean, one of the positives seemed to me the apparent strength of uh, businesses and the consumer in the JP Morgan report, at least. I mean, the, um, the borrowing on the business end um, seemed to be still relatively strong. Loan losses, um, practically zero. So from that perspective, um, how important do you think that is as a lodestar for where we're going? Yeah, I think so. If you put that in perspective, uh, the long-term average for uh, American banks in terms of net charge-offs or a figure of cost of risk is a five-five, fifty-five basis point. And I think so. On my number, we run around twenty-three basis points. So that's exactly half for the long-term average. But at the same time, I think, uh, and I think it's good the, the banks that so they're getting ahead of this. They take in more uh, uh, reserve bills. Just think, uh, JP Morgan. They took. Uh, they released. Uh, a year ago in Q2 21, $2.3 billion. And over the last two quarters, they essentially rebuilt uh, these reserves. I think uh, 400 million yesterday and almost 1 billion in the first quarter. And I think also we'll see more from the, ba- from the Bank of America, the Wells Fargo, because uh, I think so far the, the, the economic condition is still good. I think the unemployment is relatively strong, but I think also there are some clouds gathering and rising. So I think it makes sense for the banks to start rebuilding those reserves, which last year were almost entirely released. 
Felipe, there was an element of pass the parcel or hot potato about these results, which saw the misses effectively around these leveraged loans and the banks had not passed them on quickly enough. And that saw a loss as what, 257 million in markdowns for JP Morgan, 282 million mark to market losses for Morgan Stanley. Is this just going to be a feature of this quarter though? Because we've already heard that some of the banks had pulled back on this type of lending for the, the current quarter. Yeah, I think this is a distinct possibility, and I think it's also it makes sense because so if you think so, the uh, credit spread are, are very wide over the quarter. I think so yield now is reaching nine percent in terms of yield. So and the um, the primary market actually quite very quiet. I mean, I think the CFO or JP Morgan was referring to June and one of the quietest June he ever seen. And I think so those banks so they of course so they do bridge loans for uh, LBO the past and those LBO they're coming the first year so they need to uh, um, uh, release those loans otherwise there will be a pretty penalizing capital charge so I think yeah it's likely we'll see more of this type of uh, of event with a slow primary market in, in fixed income. Felipe, can we also ask you about the wild market activity and what that's meant for the trading portfolios for some of the banks? Have we learned anything more about what that's likely to mean, given even the action we've seen just in recent weeks? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's tricky to uh, say uh, uh, draw a common lesson, but I think volatility uh, with a pinch of sand, we can say it's been relatively good for trading, especially in FX, because we have a very uh, hated volatility. Then it's been relatively good in, uh, I would say, in, in the macro business. So commodities, of course, not now commodities are coming down, but that's been a source of uh, good uh, volatility, if you want. And then, of course, also interest rates volatility, which I think also the second quarter this year is one of the uh, highest uh, uh, rates volatility web witness at least since the global financial crisis. So this been conducive to the trading business. Less so, as I was saying, on the on say on the underwriting, especially of uh, on, on the equity side. Uh, Felipe, good morning to you. Isn't it time now to put to bed the nonsense that we hear every single time we have a rate hiking cycle? That a lot of your peers in the industry and a lot of the industry gets well excited about net interest margins improving because we have higher interest rates. But the fact of the matter is the weight of factors moving against uh, the uh, investment banks and the banks more generally because of the concerns about inflation, because of the concerns about delinquencies, because of the concerns of other economic factors as well. Isn't it the fact that this silly idea that NIMS are going to improve the share price performance when actually a lot of other factors are working against the banks as well? Isn't it time to just actually be a little bit more clinical about this from terms of the analysts? Yeah, I think I saw you hitting the right spot here because I think directionally, if you look at the industry, there will be a net interest income uplift. But then I think it's probably likely that this uh, uplift will be or just offset uh, pressure for, uh, and uh, pressure from especially the costs, the wages, et cetera, the delinquency, the natural jobs. And then also I think also this offsetting will essentially make for flattish top line. So I wouldn't get too much excited about uh, higher rates. Uh, necessary means uh, higher share price to a higher profitability. I think also there are lots of, uh, um, say, uh, dependent variables in here.
Yeah, and too many of your peers, certainly stateside, have said that because of the rising, right uh, rising rate environment, it's time to buy the banks. Well, I'm not being funny. The banks have had a dismal uh, 2022 so far. That said, they are very well run for institutions in many cases. I have uh, a lot of admiration for the management of a lot of these institutions. Are they good value at the moment or actually do we still need to stand aside? Uh, no, I think in some cases they are good value because, as you said, that's how they uh, uh, say violently underperforming the the, the broader S&P. I think uh, to your point, uh, really, I think we need to remind you that the shape of the curve is actually much more important than the absolute rate because if, say, the Fed then goes to 395 or, or, or thereabouts, as the market seems to be projecting, and I think actually they could do even, they could go higher, then, of course, I mean, if we have a flattish curve, a flat interest rate curve, then I think the benefit is almost negligible. So actually, we need a, um, a steeper curve because of all for the for the duration management of the bank. So, but I, I would agree that uh, most of these institutions are so they are very well run. Yeah. Um, Filippo, do I remember you're a, a, a strange creature, an Italian who's a big cricket fan? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Did you watch the game yesterday? Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in between looking at the earnings figures from the banks. It was absolutely fantastic. What a wonderful day it was as well. Uh, Filippo, thank you very much indeed. I'm glad you enjoyed the cricket, um, which England won for a change. Uh, Filippo Alouati, head of financials at Federated Hermes as well. I had, I had a chap come up to me uh, at um, uh, the cricket ground I was at yesterday, uh, Jeff and Karen. Uh, and, uh, oh, hi, Steve, how are you? I was like, yeah, great, great to see you. He said, you don't know me. Um, I just love your show. Did Any you? Um, it's, it's always a tricky one, though, isn't it? it? When people come up, people, you, yeah. you think, uh, now, do I remember this face? And even if you can't remember the face, you very have to familiar. say, hi. Now, <laughs> I know you know the answers, but Karen doesn't, because I've already yeah. mentioned this to you. Do you know who he pointed out, this gentleman, um, who, who he said his favourite person was at CNBC? I, th I, thought, I thought it would really? be you, or be me, Jeff. or Jeff, or, I don't know, Joe Kernan, or something. I don't know. It was Anetta. It was Annette. He no. said, I love the show, especially your German correspondent. I thought, what a lovely thing to say. Oh, we love Annette too. We so. very much do, and we love her dry sense of humour, always <laughs> taking me down a peg, which I love. OK, this is what the markets did yesterday, and I think this was a terrific performance by the markets. I don't judge markets by the direction of the momentum very often. I judge it by the factors in place as indeed I hope you do as well. So we've seen very tricky session for the financials, extraordinary data coming out, including a pickup in the weekly jobless claims, which I thought was very interesting now, uh, coming in at 244,000. Bearing in mind, we had them as low uh, as 166,000 in March. So we are seeing an upward trend, albeit glacial at the moment, uh, in one of the, the bulwarks of the economy. One of the reasons why Janet Yellen isn't worried about recession just yet is because of the strength of the labour market. And we are seeing a couple of unsettling so don't get me wrong it's very contraindicators left right and center as we saw with payroll last week but we are seeing a steady increase in trend there so i think the financials performance was a concern i think energy stocks of course were under a lot of pressures we saw huge oscillation in brent and wti we also saw the mere matter the mere matter of 11.3 percent ppi very, very large number on the back of the CPI number. And by the way, we've got retail sales coming as well. And I just want to make a point. I, 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 and we'll get treasuries. By all means, show them up. Uh, very benign markets in the bond markets. For all you economists out there, 
you genius economists, who, by the way, missed the fact that inflation wasn't transitory, who are now saying, oh, it's all coming off now, inflation. It's going to come right off. Well, let's be honest about it. Inflation is still going up for your consumers, which is two-thirds of your economy. It's just your base effects may be changing, yeah? So whilst you argued that, oh, it was all about base effects on the way up, you're now arguing about base effects to back your argument. For consumers, investors, and just about everybody out there, the cost of living crisis isn't getting better. It's getting worse because your pay demands are not carrying on to anywhere near the level of inflation, even if the base effects mean that from here on in, you believe inflation is going to abate from here as well. So it still gets tighter for the consumer, which, as I am at pains to point out, is two-thirds of the economy, okay? So when we talk about inflation pressures abating, they're not. They're just, they're still getting higher. And if your wage demands are not keeping up with them, it's still a cost of living crisis. It's an increase uh, in the amount that goods cost compared to what you are being paid. All right, so let's get this right. You want base effects as your argument for why it's transitory? We can use them both sides. There you go, there's a challenge to a few people. Uh, 10 year yields, 2.95, 30 yields, 3.1. Again, very flat to inverted curve. Um, at times, we are at levels we haven't seen since 2007. US futures look like this. Uh, we have inclines, mild inclines. But again, the rally we had off, off our lows yesterday uh, was, uh, was very impressive, actually. At one point, the Dow was down over 600 points. So quite a turnaround. Let's just talk about uh, what's playing out in the auto space. Uh, General Motors says it is still dealing with production snags that will last into next year. The auto giant said earlier this month that the global supply crunch will put pressure on its second quarter earnings, although it maintained previous guidance for the full year. CEO Mary Barra told CNBC that while there have been improvements, production challenges will continue. This will go into 23, and that's why it's so important that we get uh, chip manufacturing, you know, uh, in this country, and the CHIPS Act is so important. But uh, really, it's going to take uh, additional capacity. And then at General Motors, we also announced we're standardizing on three families of semiconductors, so we're going to have a lot more ability, a lot more scale as we go forward. But right now, it's, it's you know, we, we solve issues and new issues pop up, and we're just dealing with it on a weekly basis. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.